Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Ancient tools and burials, plants and seeds, Neanderthals. All these things we make no apology for the study of archaeology. But we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do Welcome to the Archaeological Fantasies Podcast, episode 47. I'm your host, Sarah, with my co-hosts today, Ken Fader and Jeb Card. Today we're talking about diffusionism and hyperdiffusionism. What are they? What do they mean? How are they used by the fringe? And why we don't use those terms in archaeology anymore? Get ready to think critically. You will see are a staple of archaeology. But we don't do dinosaurs, no we don't do dinosaurs, no we don't do dinosaurs. Hey everyone and welcome back to the Archaeological Fantasies podcast. I am your host Sarah and today I am joined by Ken Fader. Hi, Hi Ken. And I am joined by Jeb Card. Hello. Yes. And today we are talking about diffusionism and hyperdiffusionism and why... We've been talking about the history of those terms, and today we're going to stick a fork in these terms and and explain why we don't use these terms anymore. I mean, yeah. We've talked about this a lot on uh, on the podcast, very specific instances where somebody's claimed that the, the way to under, understand a particular culture, a particular time period, is through this agency of diffusion or hyperdiffusionism. But we've never really sat down and said, this is exactly what we mean by those terms. So we thought it would be good to kind of revisit the topic and, and talk about, all right, what, what are we even talking about? How did this, how did this perspective become kind of entrenched in, 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 in professional archaeology and anthropology and why we don't do that anymore, why that's been abandoned? Right. And yeah. Jeb has a really good definition for diffusionism. And then also later on, we have a really great um, explanation as to why yeah. we don't use that term yeah. more. So, Jeff, you can start us How's off. How's that putting you on the, that, that's pretty good for putting well, you on the spot, Well, ha- hang on. <laughs> there, there, I hear some breaking news behind me. Um, uh, I, I'm, I think I'm hearing a trumpet and a, and a seal breaking because all three of us are on the show. <laughs> so this may be bad, uh, but it's we'll see what times. we can do. If there's a fourth, if we can somehow find a fourth, uh, uh, you know, horseman. That would be terrible. But yes, okay. Anyway, um, you know, this this term you, you hear diffusion. I mean, you know, I'm sure some, I'm sure there's some use of it involving cells in biology and other things I don't do uh, that involves, but basically something going from point A to point B. And um, so something I, I want to get straight out of the way, you're not going to hear, you're not going to generally see the term other than from a historical perspective, diffusion in say an archeological article today. And you might be like, but wait, things go from point A to point B. I mean, my pants were made in Sri Lanka or in Iowa, and I'm not in those places. So, you know, they diffuse to me. But 
what diffusion really means, what an archaeologist used to say diffusion, uh, what they meant was explaining culture change. It was a framework for explaining, oh, look, things changed here. Was it because people kept changing what they were doing because of environmental changes or social uh, fluctuations or other kinds of, of reasons? Or it's like, no, somebody else came here and did it. Oh, there's a new kind of pottery. Somebody else came here and did it. Uh, right. There's a new technology. Somebody else brought it with them. Uh, that's what diffusion generally meant uh, before the first, before the middle of the of the 20th century, and uh, hyperdiffusion. And we'll get more into this, but just to sort of uh, get it out there, hyperdiffusion is sort of the same idea, but a, as you might guess from name, uh, hyper, which reminds me of when I'm. Uh, in El Salvador, because uh, extra is not used there a lot, like in advertisements and promotions, but hyper or hyper is. So I'm just having flashbacks to that. Uh, hyper know. diffusion uh, is one much bigger, farther away, uh, with sort of the ultimate version of hyper diffusion being extraterrestrial hyper diffusion, ancient aliens, which we will talk about. Um, but also usually looking at one source. So it's not just extreme in distance, but also extreme in everything coming from one place. And that one place is typically a place like Egypt or the Middle East or Atlantis or Zeta Reticuli 2, <laughs> something, something along uh, those lines. But we don't really use this term anymore because we have, we've come up with more nuanced, uh, more sophisticated, and frankly, more accurate, although not always more explanatory about every single question we've got, uh, arguments for why culture changed in the past. Right. And, and uh, hmm? no, go ahead. Well, uh, what were you going to ask? Oh, I was just going to clarify. So go ahead and finish. Oh, well, well, what I was going to say was, is, uh, something that is kind of interesting to me is that there was an actual backlash against us in the field. So it's not just that, uh, we don't use this term anymore. It's just kind of died out for something else. No, we really don't like this. And I'm actually going to read the abstract from a, uh, an article in American Antiquity, which at that time and still still is for North America, but that time was for all the Americas, was the flagship journal for archaeology in uh, the New World. This is an article from 1966, Diffusionism and Archaeology by John Rowe, uh, who was an important uh, archaeological theorist at, th at this time. Uh, and I think if I remember right, Ken, he did a lot of work in uh, the Caribbean. That was sort yes. of his, uh, his stopping yeah. grounds. Uh -huh. um, abstract for Diffusionism and Archaeology, Doctrinaire dif just in terms of language, I just want to say, this is interesting. Doctrinaire diffusionism is a menace to the development of sound archaeological theory based on comparative studies. It distracts archaeologists from such studies and seeks to destroy the basis of comparison. Diffusionist arguments are defective in principle, however. The bias in the selection of data for these arguments can be illustrated by listing cultural similarities between ancient Peru and the ancient Mediterranean. There were several other articles or chapters, even a couple of volumes that argued about this. Because even into the 1950s and 60s, there were a number of archaeological thinkers and theorists, less and less as time went, who still held to this idea. But it was being displaced by, at that time, a lot of ecological stuff, like uh, looking at um, culture as adaptation and how humans adapt to their ecological, social, and uh, technological environments. And they change culture as sort of essence culture as a tool. And that's seen as unsophisticated in some ways today. But the point is, is that uh, it was being kind of like, no, we're not just don't liking this. We're getting rid of it because it's a distraction. It's a problem. And he kind of points out, like you guys have, a lot of sort of the methodological problems yeah. with it. And I don't want to get into all that, but that's what this article is. Yeah, the, very briefly, the article is a, it's, it's predicated on 
traitless comparisons. So what yes. he does is he has a list of specific traits um, attributable to the ancient people of Peru and yeah. medieval Europe. And essentially what his point was, was that you could cherry pick, take any two cultures, oh, yeah. cultures that have no contact whatsoever, cherry pick behaviors and say, from these, well, there were so many of them, what are the odds that these folks had developed these like, things independently? These and, people have cloth tents that they use in military campaigns. These, I'm just picking one he actually has. Right. These people have cloth tents they use in military campaigns. Coincidence? Right, right. And, and that's where that's where the confusion around this term and the – I want to say the durability of this term comes in is that back in the day, back, back in the day, we used, we as archaeologists or as the, as the field was budding and becoming archaeology, there was the idea that culture or material goods were just handed. The knowledge of how to make a material good was handed down, like you said, with the tents. Obviously, one of those two cultures created cloth tents and then the other culture got it from that first culture and that's where and why diffusionism was a thing it wasn't until we stopped looking at other groups other cultural groups and other societal groups as branches of each other and started looking at them as you know organic organic substances that evolve over time that we began to understand that things could be passed down through trade a neat looking object or or a piece of art in one culture could be picked up by another culture and mimicked and then adapted or more likely someone from one culture married into another culture brought that knowledge with them and it disseminated that way and that's where the concepts of culture change and all of that have come in and why those terms are much better for describing what we actually see when we see a society or a culture of people evolve into what they are today from what they were back when we first started studying them. Well, and the other thing you see is that if you look at where the, the, the hubs of this were often worse, never even minding the hyperdiffusion, which we'll get to, right. probably the name that's most associated with this is V. Gordon Child, an important and skilled archaeologist in the, in the first half of the 20th century. And he started off, he, he eventually moved to the culture change as a process, he's, at least to some degree. Um, but he started off very much as a diffusionist and from the Middle East. And it was diffusing into Europe from the Middle East. So it's like, oh, megaliths in Europe. Well, they're made of big stones. Well, they're working even bigger stones in Egypt. That must be earlier. Right. And the reason why it was always the Middle East was, and we'll talk about this more, but I think the main reason why is they had writing. And what this really is, is the sort of, and this is why the neo-Victorians that do a lot of this alternative archaeology stuff, and we'll talk about this, um, why they they love it so much is that it, it really does bias uh, the historical over um, the material and the archaeological. Uh, and by historical, I don't mean it happened in the past. I mean the, with documents, with written documents. So um, we'll talk more about that concept, I think, as we go. Right. So we discussed how the term came about in the last episode in this in this series. And this episode, we are sticking the fork in it. And very much like you said, uh, John Rowe put it very eloquently. I like the way he wrote that, actually. I thought it was fun. Um, it's, pretty, it's pretty strong, I'll say. It is. And I like the words he used because it was you just don't read like you don't you don't read that kind of writing anymore no. today. Well, um, I, even back then, that was a little strong. So. Well, it needed to be strong, though, because like like we were saying, that was a term that was used. And, it, and like he said, by 
just saying the only way that this culture gets, the only way that these traits get passed from culture to culture is by one culture directly handing it to the next culture. It does, it, it inhibits our ability to study these things because I don't know, look at, uh, look at the noodle, for example, there's still an argument who discovered the noodle first, the Chinese or the Italians. And it's like, why, why does one of them have to have discovered it first? Why can't they have discovered it? independently of each other and, and you know, it's not impossible one did and it did go right across. right right i'm not saying it isn't i'm just but saying it, what diffusionism here means is you explain everything that right, way including right. like how religion forms and how this forms and that forms like yeah right and that's where the diffusionism becomes hyper diffusionism because yeah. now i'm saying that all culture came from another culture and right. in the past uh Ken and I have discussed this, you know, it usually, it used to be the Atlanteans were the ones who diffused all culture down. And today, for a lot of people, it still is. I mean, to a lot I mean, of people, yeah, it still is. But yeah. today you have several of them that you can pick yeah. from, including aliens. I mean, we have the yeah. Phoenicians, we have Atlanteans, we have aliens, we have apparently now the Templars. We have everyone to pick from. Yeah. You just have to throw a dart at the board and just well, pick that culture. It's nice to have options when you're a hyper-diffusionist. It's true. Yeah, I mean, you thing. can... As a hyper-diffusionist in today's era, you can find a culture to fit whatever your agenda is, but it doesn't make it true. Right. Right. But we have to remember, again, we're not – we are not gainsaying. We are not denying that ideas move around. Um, for years and years and years, uh, archaeologists working in the, the Midwest, the Mid-South, the mid -south, Southeast, fought against the notion that the, that the mound builders, especially the temple mound builders, were inspired directly – by people from Mesoamerica coming up into Louisiana, coming up into Missouri, and I and, and still wouldn't really to subscribe maps. to that. Wait, that say did. that again. Yeah, and I still, and I still don't. I mean, that's still a really ephemeral. I mean, there's there's a few material contacts like that Spiro Mound, uh, Pachuca Obsidian, the Green Obsidian, right, but. Uh -huh. uh, it's still not there's we don't from our side we don't see a huge number of contacts between the two honestly no but, but I, I'm saying but but for a long time this was kind of there was this theme that oh my god this stuff oh looks yeah that there was special. the idea that it had to right yeah, yeah, that yeah, yeah, yeah I'm sorry that, I misunderstood the, you I misunderstood the you. art looks very Mesoamerican yeah but but nevertheless the bottom line here was everybody had to admit well but corn you know <laughs> yeah. ultimately so had there had to be yeah. indirect or whatever, but after all, the corn, beans, and squash must did come from the South, whether it came through the Southwest, unclear. But there were articles about the Gilmore Corridor as being, that was the conduit, that was through yeah. Texas, that was the channel, and these little sculptures were found in the Gilmore Corridor, and they certainly didn't look Mesoamerican, but the idea was, yeah, but, but our Indians don't know how to make sculptures, and Mesoamericans did, so therefore... If, yeah, we, that's... if we apply the same term, sculpture, yeah. well, that makes them the same. But that's just yeah. like that's, let, yeah, that's just like Donnelly saying, well, there are pyramids in Mesoamerica, right. there are pyramids in Egypt. Because we use the same term, that yeah. means they're identical and they must have had a common source. Well, and I think that's another thing that people are confused about when it comes to archaeology. We have categories that things fit into. When you, Once you get done collecting data the the whole analyzation end of the data is categories within categories within categories so you start off with a very large category like pyramids and from there you start subcategorizing it it doesn't mean that every pyramid is a pyramid you know it just means that they all have defining characteristics that we would put them into that same thing with statuary 
or or figurines or that kind of stuff. And before anybody out there accuses me of thinking that things don't transfer from one place to the other, I just would like to put this out here. I've talked a little bit about what I've done outside of, you know, Crystal Skulls and Ancient Aliens. Um, My dissertation, which, if for people who don't know, that is a thing that, you know, gives you your your PhD, and it is usually the thing that follows you in many ways throughout much of your life. Not always, but it's often one of the main things that identifies and guides your work, Mm. is on a friggin' Spanish colonially ruled culture contact site on the Pacific side of Central America. And the premier part of my research is literally showing how forms in Italy diffused to Spain were then copied to by, by Pipil Nawa potters in northern Central America. If anybody knows about like what a hyperdiffusion site would actually <laughs> look like if they weren't making it up, I would probably be on a short list. <laughs> well, there well you go. It, yeah, and 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 like like you're saying, Jeb. I mean, yes, these things do often, yeah. especially post contact. We see this happen a lot. Um, I know here on the East Coast and in the Midwest, there was a certain type of native pottery that the colonialists and the settlers found particularly attractive, and so they would trade heavily for that type of pottery. Mm-hmm. So all of the all of the tribes in the area started making that specific kind of pottery, not because it was culturally theirs, but because they knew they could trade they well could sell for it. it. Yeah. yeah. Out of curiosity, what did they like about it? Um, I, w- I don't remember every single detail, okay. but I remember that the pottery was red. And I, I was think about to ask. I was going to bet it was red. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a red pottery, and it's a red mm-hmm. glaze that goes on the pottery. Yeah. That, um, and, yeah, they really, really liked it. And so that's just what the Native Americans started making so that they could trade for better goods. It would have been so much more awesome if I said, was it red? I was thinking I really was, but <laughs> I, I didn't want to seem too weird. No, it, it's got red on it. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. red, it's, a, it's a neat color, you know? Yeah. And yeah. it stands out very well. If anybody's ever seen uh, Native American pottery that has the red ochre paint or glaze on it, it's it stands out quite a yeah. bit. And it's very striking especially when you combine it with like the lyre colored clays or when they do that neat burning thing that they do where they get that that nice black line on it. Oh yeah. Yeah. The reduction wear. No, that's one of the things that when when Europeans adopt indigenous pottery in the new world, it is often red wear. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, so these things do get passed on directly, not necessarily because of one thing or another. Sometimes it's, it's commerce related. Sometimes it's trade related. Sometimes it's, you know, the culture's marrying into another or like with yours, which is really kind of cool. Something cool was seen by one culture in another area. It was brought to the Americas and then passed on to another culture here who picked it up and continued on with it. Yeah. And, and by the way, that had come from North Africa, and it was a copy of things that were going on in Egypt, which was a copy of things going on in northern Iraq in the 9th century, which was an attempt to uh, make porcelain, but they didn't have the materials or the technology you had in China. So it's copies of copies of copies of copies of copies of copies. Right. right. And it's a perfect so that does happen. Yeah, it's a perfect example. But yeah. that's not. But that doesn't explain how the friggin' Spaniards. I mean, that's the thing. It doesn't right. explain. It's part of larger phenomena. Right. 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 The, the question I have for you, Jeb, and this just c- completely um, something I'd forgotten about, is that years and years ago there were there was at least one article comparing a a game, a Mesoamerican game, Patoli. Yeah, Patoli, yeah, and, and how Pachisi. that's really Parcheesi. 
It's one of those things. It's one of those things that people talk about, and it looks weird and interesting. And I don't think anybody's ever been able to say much more than that, except for the fact, except for the fact that the Patoli does also seem to have something, maybe, possibly. No, it's not even that. No, it's some people tried to relate it to an earlier Teotihuacan astronomical thing, and even that doesn't seem to be the case. It's one of those. Well, that's interesting. (laughs) <laughs> that's it. Huh? Yeah. Then the room gets yeah. really quiet. I could well, be wrong, but that's as far as I'm aware of it. Well, right. when we come back from the break, uh, we will continue to talk about other really interesting things that sometimes get confused for being what they are not. Archaeology and Ale is a free monthly talk presented by Archaeology in the City from the University of Sheffield Archaeology Department. That's where the archaeology part of Archaeology and Ale comes from. As for the ale part, the talk is held upstairs at the Red Deer, a great local pub on Pitt Street in Sheffield, South Yorkshire, on the last Thursday of every month. If you're in Sheffield, do come along, and don't worry, non-ale alternatives are also available. If you can't make it to Sheffield, never fear. You can listen to the Archaeology and Ale Talk every month right here on the Archaeology Podcast Network. And now, back to the show. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then, there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And we are back, and we are still talking about diffusionism and hyperdiffusionism. And, Jeb, you have an interesting term that you want to throw into the mix as well. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a term that I I, I just I've occasionally talked about my book on this uh, for my my one for New Mexico on this, and it's now in their hands. So we'll see whether they like it or not. But one of the things I developed on this, I, I'm not gonna lie, if you had asked me say two years ago about now ancient aliens, I understood the appeal, but hyperdiffusion or Atlantis. I mean, I was aware of these things. I I kept track of them like. Who cares? I mean, no, who cares? I mean, if it was true, that would be amazing. But the, but like the, the emotional appeal, like, I'm just like, why do you care about this? You know, what's the big deal? And I never got it. Well, I finally think I figured it out last year. And, and it was kind of like ruminating on this sort of stuff. And I could be wrong. Maybe someone's like, well, of course, you know, I'm fine. Um, but I think it really boils down to, there's this old phrase, um, that archaeology is the handmaiden of history. Right. And this goes back to the 19th century, this, this idea that archaeology just provides the material stuff uh, of what was called antiquarianism or history. And by history, we don't mean things that are old. Here we mean it in the more specific sense of things that are written down. You know, when uh, I think it was Woolley wrote, history begins at Sumer, 
he wasn't a young earth creationist who was saying that like, and then there was nothing physically before Sumer. He literally meant written history started there, which is mm -hmm. technically accurate. Uh, and certainly at the time it was accurate. Um, but there was also the connotation that that was the beginning of crap that mattered. And that's, I think, where all this hyperdiffusion stuff comes in. There are examples that disprove this, and that gets, I think, more into ethnic and race stuff. Like uh, when you guys talked about the Salutrian hypothesis. For those who have not heard it, basically in a nutshell, it's the idea that maybe people from Western Eurasia, Europe, uh, helped populate the, the North America 20,000 years ago, and most archaeologists do not believe it, but there are a few who do. Um, that one is the rare example of somebody without writing going somewhere and supposedly influencing somebody or causing somebody without writing. Mm -hmm. The vast majority of cases, that is not it. In the modern day, it's somebody with writing going somewhere where at that time there isn't writing. So the, key here, case of, so the key here is that the, the mother culture has to have a writing, has to have a system of writing. Right. And I think the reason for this is, is that, frankly, a lot of people – don't like or don't get the whole science side and material side of archaeology. When we're dealing with material culture and we're dealing with analyzing to understand the past, that is not literally the word of God. And I mean that in both the literal biblical sense, but all just the word of God is in like the final word. Like, you know, it's not written down, all that. It's and it's like detective work. It's this sort of analysis with a lot of well, maybes, could have interpretations. Oh, we were wrongs. A lot of people don't like that. I think there's a lot of cultural value to the historical, to, to, to named peoples. You know, people don't necessarily like, oh, archaeological culture with name blank, which has its own problems uh, methodologically and theoretically, but the Phoenicians, even right. though that's not a real name necessarily. <laughs> the Aztecs is certainly not a real name. It's a later messed up name for the Mexica. But... Uh, once I realized that, once I realized it was a populating the past with more of the certainty and also more of the recognizability of the written record of, oh, Phoenicians in Mesoamerica frankly feels better to a lot of people than, well, I don't know what's going on there except for material records, which of course mm -hmm. is why everybody floms onto the Maya because they do have writing. Um, and I, I finally realized, I, I never understood Atlantis. I'm just like, why does anybody care? Um until you realize that that's sort of the ultimate version of explaining all of global prehistory with something that at least kind of sort of shows up in written records. Right. Whereas actually in hand axes don't show up in written records. You know, what, what you're saying here, Jeff, may, may explain something that I've experienced. And I've done a number of talking head bits for National Geographic Channel, for History Channel, whatever. When I add up the, the, the topics or the themes of all the ones I've ever done, Three quarters of them have been Atlantis, and yeah. not ancient aliens, not not Celts in North America. It's been Atlantis, and maybe that explains why people yeah. are so engaged with the notion that there was this great, um, amazing, highly sophisticated mother culture that spread civilization to 
to the rest of the world. And that's well, I mean, I think so part of it's definitely like the, the the love of that idea of a mother culture, this like this source, because it's frankly it's simple. But the fact right. that it's in Plato, that it's in the Greeks, and that it's supposedly in the Egyptians, although it's we, as you guys have talked about, it's, it's no, not. It's not. <laughs> um, but but that supposedly is, and then you could trace it back through a written tradition back to the Middle East in some capacity. I think that's where it gets its value for a lot of people. Whereas, since frankly, as somebody who's A, interested in like Mesoamerica, and B, while I love hieroglyphs, you guys know I, I love like ancient writing stuff, I also fully love the value of like purely material archaeology. That doesn't have an impact for me. That doesn't have like that sort of appeal right. for me. And so I'm, I, that's why I've never understood it last until I finally was like, oh, wait. And then you guys have talked about how a lot of the diffusionary stuff has a colonialist component and a race component. Well, here's a reality. If you're talking about folks that have writing, those are going to generally be states. And if they're running into people that don't have writing, that doesn't mean they're states or they're not states. But a lot of times they're not. And that usually ends up badly because of things of scale. Right. Um, it's because and, and, they don't have flags. Well, yes, to some degree. Is that, is that uh, who is that? That's, that's Eddie uh, Izzard. Eddie Izzard, thank you, yeah. Uh, yes, exactly. I mean, to some degree, that's funny because it is a bit true. Um, but yeah, which usually that ends badly. So and so this collapsed proto-history idea I've been working on, what it, what, it, what it finally struck me was there's sort of people that treat the, you know, the recent time as historical time. And then anything older than that's like deep and mythical, and that gets us into our ancient aliens and our Atlantis to some degree. That edge, that knife's edge between the two is where so many – because think about the terms that hyperdiffusionists use. They talk about – now, you mentioned the Templars, and that's the rare exception. That's a that's weird a new one thing. to talk about that. Yeah, that's a new thing, yeah. and that's specifically because of a reason. But, yeah, we'll talk about that later. Thank we'll talk about that. Scott but Walter. most of them are not. Most <laughs> yes, exactly. Right. Most of them are actually at off in the beginning of the historical record. And a lot of the names that people put so much kind of like almost mythic resonance on, things like Germans. Germans is a term that comes from Romans writing about what we now call Germany. Or Celts, same thing. Or Aztecs, same thing. Or Inca, same thing. Or any of the names that were given to people in North America. They had their own distinct names, and those often get glommed into right. big later terms. And right. Ken can talk about that more. He's, he's talked about that with his uh, the, the lighthouse research. The, all of those are basically the edge of the historical uh, moving into places that were not. And so I think this diffusion and hyperdiffusion stuff is basically hitting that same that same note, that same tone. And frankly, if you're not, we talked about this before. If you're not a really big fan of science, kind of like undoing pre-science and pre-modernity. Well, then that's going to have an appeal. And it's, so your argument, if I can, your argument is that uh -huh. diffusionism and hyperdiffusionism are basically filling the need, that very human need that we have to label things. And when archaeology has these these unknown cultures, which we have very frequently, we, we're like, we have artifacts. We don't know who they are, but we have artifacts. We yeah. we know not to label those things because we know not we know that we can't be a hundred percent sure. But in the past, when you have larger societies and technologically more advanced societies moving into an area and they start encountering other cultures, they just kind of they didn't know what to call them, so they just gave them a blanket name. And that blanket name has stuck yeah. throughout the years. And so now we have we, the layperson, would recognize Aztec, 
but they wouldn't recognize the name you used for them earlier. Yeah, I think that's part of it. Labeling is part of it. I think also the fact that as our ideas about this got better, it usually was going hand in hand with professionalism and the decline of the role of the amateur in archaeology and the increasing role of the the professional. I mean, so for example, the thing that kind of, the reason why those articles we're talking about really start popping up in the 50s and 60s, finally killing diffusionism, was largely because of radiocarbon. So I mentioned megaliths earlier in pyramids. Well, the big funny thing for our, for everybody, including the archaeologists, turned out that oh, all those megaliths in Spain and France and Ireland and Britain and all that were actually older than the pyramids. Right. So apparently didn't diffuse from anywhere and, except Atlantis. And because right. um, they're all near the Atlantic Wall. You see what I'm saying? But uh, But yeah, as we got better... Uh, diffusion starts to, to to fall apart. So I think it's, yeah, is there labeling? I think it's the, we want origins, but frankly, we don't trust those pointy-headed academic eggheads who, you know, are frankly a little too secular sometimes for our taste. I think that's what um, it is now, yes. I, well, I, I think, think that's it, why it continue. holds on. I think there's various reasons. Yeah. Yeah, I, that's definitely it now. But you'd be amazed. I mean, one of the things I've been doing has been reading people that are cheesed off at archaeologists 70, 80 years ago, 100 years ago, 120, I mean, reading like Blavatsky, like in the 1880s, it's a lot closer to the stuff today than you might think in tone no, and, and even, really even some of the same language. I believe that. Yeah. It's not, it's, it, yeah, it's surprising and then it's not surprising, actually. So a lot of the reasons have actually not changed much. Right, right, right. And, and, and the same reasons why they – the same reasons why they were popular back then are the same reasons why they're popular now, not including the racial com- the racial component in it. Well, no, no, no. Too. I'm saying I mean, the it fact is, that- but there are other reasons beyond yeah. just the racial component. But, yes, it's but not it's not just race. Yeah. No, it's not just race. It's also like like you mentioned in your chapter because I got to to read it ahead of time because I'm cool like that. Um, it's kind of a laziness thing. It, it's kind of a there's a little yeah. It, it's it's easy. It's easy to classify. It's easy to understand. It's easy to talk about. Um, a lot of people, like we were mentioning earlier, a lot of people who are not part of the field don't know all of the little nuanced terms that we use. Or if they do know them, they're not aware of exactly how they're being used by the community. And that creates confusion. Whereas if I can just use a blanket term or just say diffusionism, that makes sense to people. People there, know there, there, people there is know some that. of that. And also the thing is, I mean, and we've talked about this, a lot of the people that are interested in this, the things they're doing would actually have been professionally or community-wise okay if it was 1914. Right. And and so there's there's an element of that, there's an element of that too, where you know, as things get harder. Uh, you know, basically as, as the science professionalizes and becomes more of a science, uh, there's more to do. It's, it's terminology, it's methods, it's, it's mind frame. It's standards. Yeah. Standards is the big one. And, and, and that's the thing, like what makes, you know, what makes Ciudad Vieja the first, uh, or the second Via de San Salvador different than one of these other places? Well, I have a hell of a lot more evidence at higher standards. That's why. Right. Um, and also I'm not, you know, being stupid about my theory. At least in that way, maybe other ways. But uh, yeah, no, I, I I think it's a combo of things. And you guys have mentioned some, and I think this sort of edge of writing, edge of history, is another element to it. And and we talked about this on the Sharon Hill show. 
the problem is, is that one person may be driven by one thing and somebody else may be driven by a very different thing and answering in the same way is not always necessarily going to work. Right. And you kind of need to talk to people. I mean, if you're, if you're confronting this head on as Ken and I've talked about in other shows, you need to figure out where the person's coming from before you can try to craft a counter argument to it. Um, because like you said, it's, it's not always the same thing. Some people are going to be doing it because it's what they know. It's how, it's what they were taught. That's what they were taught in school. It's what they know. And they don't want to give it up. Some people are doing it for other more nefarious reasons. Some people do it because they have very tall hair. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> you know, should mention him, actually. Jeb, another thing, I mean, this is this is an interesting approach, and I wonder also if if there's not this element, kids, kids going to school, taking their social studies classes, that history seems to be a story of great men accomplishing great things, great men with names, Right. And yeah. history gives us the names of individuals no. who make these amazing accomplishments. We don't, for the most part, we don't have that in prehistory. We don't have the names of this amazing inventor, this spectacular general. And so our inability to assign names to individuals yeah. makes makes it very difficult for people to understand, well, how does anything ever get done? It well, must, I, I think that's absolutely true. Yeah. yeah, no, I think that's, well, I think there's, well, not just that. I think what you're getting at is the labeling thing that Sarah mentioned, that if you're taught to basically say either, because look at look at how many people talk about World War II with, and then Germany did this, and Italy did this, and it's kind of like a big game of friggin' risk. Where, you know, but that's, if once you get into the history of it all, that's not how it works. I mean, yes, do these governments exist, but they don't move at those levels in any real sense. It's, it's you know, hierarchies and people over here and over there, and these things are going on. And there's frankly lots of diplomacy and other stuff. And, but we're taught to sort of think like, oh, this entity did a thing and this other entity did a thing and this other entity did a thing. And then this other entity, you know, and in a sense, diffusionism is kind of like that. We, we kind of anthropomorphize the Phoenicians. The Phoenicians went here. What, all of them? Right. Well, you can you run into the same thing when you get over to the Americas and you talk about Native Americans. Yeah. You know, you you hear that a lot, especially on shows, because I just finished watching the first season of American Unearthed and it's the Native Americans. It's like, yeah, yeah which one? Yeah. <laughs> which yeah. which group are you talking about? There's like 200 of them or something crazy like that. Or even that group, you have political differences in factions. Exactly. And the funny thing there, too, is that and I, I don't know if you're if you guys have experienced this, but one of the most common questions that I get doing prehistoric archaeology in Connecticut. When I talk about a site that's 3,000 years old, one of the most common questions is, what tribe? I said, well, I I can't tell you what tribe. This is 3,000 years. They want a name associated with people, with a group of people who who produced a particular site or or did a particular thing. And when I can't give them that name, they're they're really disappointed. People don't understand the timescale. They don't. Un- you say three thousand years, but they don't understand that that's three thousand years. People don't understand understand the timescale, and people are not comfortable with ambiguity. They, like you were saying, they want a name. Well, the 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 other thing it gets into is quite a bit of diffusionism often involves nationalism and many of the worst the worst uh, yes. abuses of it. And that gets to the idea of timeless entities, which gets back to my collapse prehistory. So I guess the thing I didn't explain earlier with the collapse proto-history is this idea that basically if it's not in history, 
that everything before, it's almost like timeless. It's like, oh, the last, let's say, 500 years, or in some places, 2,000 years, oh, we have these people moving over here. What comes before that? Antiquity. What's antiquity? Everything before that. And the edge of that is where people get their names. Like, oh, we're, what are you? Well, we have Celtic roots. We have Irish roots. We have, we have, we have Scottish roots. We have you know, the Picts, the this, the that, the, uh, the Italians, the this, you know, the, uh, everybody. Everybody has this. And they often, where are you going to get? And this is why classical history has such power. Because if you think everything before that is almost mythical, is almost bigger than humanity, if you think that antiquity is bigger than humanity, well, where are you going to look for your most powerful origins? At the first place you can label that is closest to that mythic antiquity. And I think that's that, collapsed proto-history. And that comes back to how the, literally how the human brain works. With very few exceptions, we just can't, like, we can write about it, we can put it down, we can have a rational discussion about it, but when it comes down to it, our brains just can't conceive of that much time distance. So yeah, it does get back into the mythical and it's antiquity, it's everything before. It's before time. Well, now and getting, that's and that's into, just a thing. That's just a quirk of the brain. But well, we getting know into the ancient aliens that comes from this, if you do try to absorb all that into your mind, a la Lovecraft, who I think we may bring up in a minute, um, it'll just drive you mad, or or your your face will just melt off because yeah. of the skulls. But whatever. Yeah. All right, let's go to break, and when we come back, we will get into the dark side of uh, diffusion. <laughs> yeah. The CRM Archaeology Podcast brings together a panel of cultural resource management professionals to discuss the issues that really matter to the profession. Find out about networking strategies, job hunting, graduate programs, and much more. We'll often feature interviews with college professors, CRM business owners, and experts as well. Check out the show on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash CRM Arc Podcast. Let's get back to the show. And we are back and we are polishing off our discussion about diffusionism and hyperdiffusionism. And we can't not talk about the great big elephant in the room who may or may not be white, but. And came from Egypt to Mexico. Somehow. Yes, I'm sure. Yes. Unless, unless it came across in Celtic leather skin boats and I don't know. That's possible. Is it so? And by possible, I mean not at all possible. Right. So yeah, the. One of the really, really ugly parts of hyperdiffusionism, and I guess diffusionism also, is that it yes. has a very, very strong racial component. And it tends to favor white, white races over yeah. races that are not so white. Um, I mean, the classic of this, and the guy is often talked about as being the center of academic hyperdiffusion in the early 20th century, was Grafton Elliott Smith. Yeah. He was, A, convinced that everywhere in the world owed its cultural authority to, to Egypt because of mummies. Like, everything involved mummies. Like, masonry came so you could build tomb for mummies. And, like, pottery came so you could do this from... I mean, he thought everything revolved around mummies, and that they all came from Egypt, and everything came from that. And this also tied in nicely to a lot of ideas that Europeans had at that time, that Egyptians were super white. Right, which we know is not true, but... And Smith was not alone in this, but he also was a very strong supporter of the Piltdown 
of the Piltdown Frog. Yeah. He thought it was absolutely yeah. genuine and has even been accused once or twice as perhaps having been in on it, although yeah. there's no direct evidence for that. And there's a huge list. It's kind of like Jack the Ripper. Everybody at the <laughs> time gets listed as a possible suspect. Oh, yeah, for that. yeah, yeah. There's a cast of a long right. cast of possible perpetrators. But as yeah. we have discussed, there's no evidence supporting any one person over another. So we're just going to wow. have to keep guessing. Exactly. exactly. Dawson was involved. That and Dawson. Not have been involved. Yeah. Well, yeah. who else? Who else helped him? It's, it's an open issue. And, exactly. and even and even uh, Piltdown Man. It's not a diffusionary, but it has some of the same impulses of England doesn't have its own ancient oh, yeah. person. Oh, absolutely. And oh, they came from these dawn people from Eurasia, not from Africa. No, it's it's part of the same cultural milieu. Right, and then and that's the. That's where hyperdiffusionism and diffusionism gets really insidious is when it starts claiming, you know, you hear these claims and, you know, oh, the Phoenicians, they came over to America and they started taking copper. And in the process of taking copper that they were they were giving culture to the Native Americans, because, of course, all Native Americans are one Native American. The problem with that is, is not that the person who's using that theory is saying, well, the great white Phoenicians came over and saved the poor brown people. That's not what's being said out loud, but it well, is a subtext. It is unfortunately what is being implied, whether that is intentional or otherwise. Well, this this I want to jump in here with a recent experience that I had in Minnesota there you when go. I visited the Kensington Runestone, and it, it, it's, it was really interesting. Of course, the the Runestone is housed in the same building where the Chamber of Commerce is located in Alexandria. And where you can get a bumper sticker that has a, a picture of the runestone on it, and it says, Alexandria, birthplace of America. Yeah. And I think that they're, they're saying something that, that's not terribly subtle, I don't think. No. This is, this is exactly that it was Scandinavians arriving in Minnesota. That represents the birthplace of America. In the yeah. museum, there, there, are, there are paintings and uh, the, the paintings are just—they they look like like the, from taken from like romance novels <laughs> and a diorama. And you will not find these are these ostensibly are the the, the the first people of Minnesota, and they are blonde. They are the blondest, most blue-eyed white people you can ever possibly imagine. Now, th th that being the case. About 20 miles away is the actual location of the farm where the runestone ostensibly was found, Olaf Oman's farm, which is now like a county or, or, or town park. And there is a multi-million dollar plan to put a visitor center there, a museum, again, to highlight the, the fact that this, in fact, is where America is born when the Vikings arrived. And when I was there, there's a little display where, again, ostensibly Oman found found the um, the, the runestone, and it turns out that the farm has become a pilgrimage site, where people of Scandinavian descent come to kind of just bring it all in. And when I was there, a tall gentleman saw me standing by this runestone, and I'm about the least Scandinavian-looking guy <laughs> you can imagine, and he walked over to me, and he almost had tears in his eyes. And he looked at me and said, are you Scandinavian too? And I had to say, well, no, I'm not. And he just sort of shook his head. That's okay. It's amazing, isn't it? And so there's not, this is not an evil guy. This is not a guy who I think would in any way embrace a racist perspective, at least not overtly. But the notion that his people were here, his people were here before 
that Italian Columbus guy, you know, it's it, it, on so many levels. It's so strange. This element of ethnic boosterism involved in we were here first. We discovered this first. And this is something that we should be incredibly proud of. Oh, yeah, the Indians were here, but they don't count because that's part of natural history. Anyway, history begins with us, the Vikings. Yes. Or with Clyde, Clyde Winters, and in one of Jason Colavito's recent blogs, it talks about not only does, does and, and Jeb, you can talk to this as a Mesoamericanist, not only is Winters now claiming that the, the Olmec, in fact, were African, he's saying, my God, the Anasazi, the ancestral Puebloans, they're Africans too. So all these cliff dwellings, Mesa Verde and, and, and all these other, Chaco Canyon, these actually were built by Africans. And this is something to be proud of and to highlight as a part of th this ethnic or racial pride. And it's just, it, it's incredibly strange and bizarre. And, and well, all, all, I can say, all I can say about all of that is, as I've told my students recently, the, the genetic revolution for understanding what's been going on in the last 20 some plus thousand years in the Americas has so changed in the last few years and all of it screamingly points at Northeastern Asia. Right, exactly. And no, no input, no genetic input from other people. But you know, it's, well, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. I mean, it's so well, it's, bizarre. Yeah. Well, I'm just saying, it's so bizarre that um, here in Massachusetts there is um, a, a rock with petroglyphs, with genuine Native American petroglyphs called Dighton Rock. Right. Um, and it's been studied since the 1600s, and and yes, there were early on there actually was a claim, and you can find people actually saying in print. Well, none of it can be Native American because Native Americans are not capable. They don't have the tools necessary to scratch marks in stone. And these guys, in, in and we don't have a lot of petroglyphs in New England, and so they actually had to contact folks in the Midwest and in the Southwest who said, well, no, actually, the Indians were capable of making petroglyphs. But what's really curious is in 1913, De La Barre, right, a researcher, people have been looking at this rock for 250 years, he suddenly found the name Miguel Corte Real etched into the stone with the date 1511. The Portuguese community in Massachusetts and Rhode Island has embraced this yeah. as evidence that, okay, we didn't beat Columbus, but God damn it, we, be we beat the English here so that yeah. there, was, there was a Portuguese presence here. So it's like, it's this incredible competition for not who's on first, but who was here first, as if it really made a difference. Well, we talked about that with the uh, the Newport Tower, which was right. basically like reinterpreted to be Vikings as Northern Europeans, specifically because largely of those Portuguese people, actually. Yes. Well, and, and now that also is a Templar artifact. I didn't know yeah. if you were aware. Well, the whole Templar, that's a whole other... <laughs> the Templar thing's just know. a new weird thing. I, I, I will just say in terms of hyperdiffusion and particularly extra super hyperdiffusion, when I traveled through uh, New England in 2011... Uh, I stopped at actually a petroglyph site and I stopped at the one in Bellows Falls and Ken could probably say, right. oh, well, of course that's why Jeb would stop there because that's the one where they have antennae. Yes, they, cer they certainly do. Right. And it's also a very pretty site. We haven't talked about the alien aspect of this too oh, it's, much. it's beautiful, yeah. Um, <clears throat> but the alien aspect of it does kind of come back to a, a, a weird racist kind of ethnocentric yeah, I mean, kind of component as well because – you know, you, you see, or at least this is how it used to go, is that the aliens, when they did finally come to Earth and decide to give us all whatever they're giving us, you know, they're always giving culture to anyone who isn't Oh, it pale still is. And still helping is. the pale people do the things that they do. On a side yeah. note, did you know that uh, 
History Channel with Ancient Aliens has created an app game for your phone. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, and Suklos tells you it's really cute, by the way. He's like this cute little animated dude with the hair. And well, I believe that's also his real life status is he's basically is a cartoon sort of. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it's really neat because like it's this it's not a great game. Like it's pretty, but it's not a great game. It's a building game and you spend way too much yeah. time doing menial tasks. Yeah. But when you complete a level of something, Tsuklos comes on and explains to you why whatever it is that you just did was done by aliens and, and how these things are how the like the, the, the Saquara bird is evidence of aliens and how the academics uh, just wouldn't accept that as evidence. And it's, it's really funny to read. Um, but yeah, well, so the, the fascinating thing is actually with the alien stuff, a lot of the uh, uh, the farther you go into it, I mean, first off, one of these things people uh, think is that, you know, it's always they think, oh, the Inca rocks or pyramids. And that's the stuff on the surface. When you actually watch and read these things, most of it turns out that they're basically, once again, interested in texts, ancient texts here, ancient texts. And often, though not always, religious texts. And what you see, and a number of people have pointed this out, any number of people have pointed this out. Several pointed it out more. But one thing you start to see is, is that increasingly, if you watch the show on, on the History Channel, it becomes really obvious. They increasingly become less physical little gray guys or big, tall Venusians or whatever that come out of metal spaceships and increasingly becoming more, they're channeled in, which goes back to the, the spiritualists and the theosophists of the late 19th century. Right. They're channeled in and they teach wisdoms uh, in almost like non- material sense and at that point you're like and the difference between this and angels is what exactly <laughs> well, the answer is not much but they're still they're still using the concept of diffusionism to get culture oh, yeah. to people being i mean yes yes now i'm possessed by an alien as opposed to being visited by yeah. one but i'm still yeah. using alien whatever to oh yeah learn how to write to learn how to make yeah. medicine or, yeah. or any of the other things that we are perfectly aware of how other how ancient cultures got to where they were at yeah. But did, did you ever think we'd get to a point in all this that we really miss Eric Von Donneken? Because at least he's got spaceships. And yeah, yeah. Like Star Trek and stuff, as opposed to these interdimensional, hyperdimensional beings well, who kind of flit around the universe and share their wisdom. For me, I don't. I actually don't. <laughs> Is that right, really? For two reasons. I mean, one, because I feel like I understand it much better. <clears throat> like, you know, because I, 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 you know, I, I get into the fact that this comes from a mixed excuse me, a mix of spiritualism, theosophy, and, and frankly, the, you know, the science fiction of people like, like Howard Phillips Lovecraft. I, I, I kind of, it's more honest. In a sense, it's almost more honest. It's, it's not quite there, but rather than like, well, hey, you know how you like Atomic Engines 1957? Well, ancient alien atomic engines. So it's like, well, actually, we're just basically talking about them being the gods. And it's almost, okay. it's almost more honest versus like materializing it and giving it this material cloak it's you know it gets back into you it know it also like, relieves you of the necessity to provide physical evidence oh yeah though. yeah no that definitely, like, it definitely oh does. you won't accept any of the physical evidence that i've been putting forward all these years well yeah. fine then now they're just entities oh okay yeah. fine whatever yeah but no it's 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 almost like uh, you know i, I think it's going to become a drinking game to see where jeb <laughs> gonna slip uh, cryptozoology and it's almost like, hey, you know what? If you're going to say Bigfoot's a forest spirit rather than try to screw with, like, what we know about human evolution, I almost kind of like that better. Okay, so 
I was just thinking this the other day, and it has absolutely nothing to do with what we're talking about. But uh-huh. I think it would be awesome if somebody out there who is super creative and funny at the same time would make a web comic where it's Slenderman and the Bigfoot and they're like roommates. I just want that to happen, and I want I want hilarity to ensue. So someone else well, do that for me. That's not me because mine would basically involve getting like in paint the little uh, blocks and circles and filling them in with color and then putting text bubbles because that's about as good as my art if I'm not drawing pottery shirts or hieroglyphs gets to. So, <laughs> but yeah, so all of this, I think, all this, all this diffusionism stuff, it's, it's really a lot of people preserving outmoded ways of looking at the past and looking at archaeology that come from a time when open racism was acceptable. Right. That come from a time when open colonialism was acceptable. Uh, where imperialism was a thing that you actually like praised, um, and and if if I saw people who were addressing that in some of their diffusionism, it still wouldn't make it correct. But it often seems like that's often the point of the diffusionism, frankly. I, you know, sometimes I feel like people who are clinging to these these old concepts of you know Atlanteans and Phoenicians and and the the whole concept of culture being diffused from a white race. You can even go back to the Salutrian hypothesis in this. Um, I don't feel like they understand that's what they're doing. What? Oh, I think some saying. of them do. Some of them some do, of them. and it's the, the Salutrian people, not not the not the archaeologists who are, are are for the the concept, but the people who have taken this and yeah. run with it, and they're like, yeah, my genetic code says I'm like I don't care. That means nothing, but. Like the casual, the casual person who's into these concepts of Phoenicians and Vikings and all that, I don't think that they understand that they are saying, I don't think they understand what they're saying. And that's why when you, when you point out, Hey, you know, that's kind of racist. That's why they get upset about it because they, they're not intentionally being racist. I'm sure there are some who are, are some, not. Yes. Uh, no, 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 no. I'm going the other way. Okay. <clears throat> I, I am sure there are some, maybe quite a few, that are not aware of that. But honestly, I am a little less – I'm a little skeptical of that, honestly. I kind of do think that quite a few – I mean, look at how often. Ken so, agrees with you on that one too. Cause, <laughs> yeah, because so look how. Well, the thing I would say is this: look at how often so many of the people that talk about this refer to their textbooks. Like you know, the high school textbooks are all wrong. The da 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 da. That's usually a code for history back before blank studies ruined. Right, right, right. And that does, frankly, tie into. It also goes back to the though. It also goes back to a lot of these people who say these things are you know thirties, forties. They're they're like the youngsters. history that I was taught. Yeah, youngsters for Ken. Youngsters. <laughs> but it's like the history that I was taught in school is not necessarily the history that their kids are being taught in school. We have a much more inclusive history text now. We yeah. try to include people of other cultures and races in our history text because, you know, America isn't that great white country that we all seem to think it is. But even as far back as when I was in history class, that's kind of how it was taught. Like yeah. you heard about uh, Carver Washington with his peanuts, and yeah, that, you, that was about it. Yeah, yeah, and that was pretty much it. And as far as women were concerned, meh. Yeah. You yeah. know, you might have heard about Madame Curie, meh, yeah. if you were lucky. No, exactly. And and, and the so thing it, is- I, it may not be specifically racism. It could just be I'm scared of change. And that is a line that I'm not going to even remotely know how to draw and define. But exactly. <laughs> right. I, I, th- I think it's part of a larger 
it's part of a larger, it's, it's reactionary. It, yeah, it's, it is. It's reactionary. And the thing is, is you're, see, here's the interesting part. Some of these things, we, we were actually saying so many of these reasons don't change, but there are, some of the larger culture, cultural motivations do somewhat shift. So like the one we're talking about would not have made any sense in the 1930s, really, but many of the, much of the same language was often still being used for somewhat different reasons. Maybe a reaction to what was going on then, but they clearly weren't reacting to the same things. Right. What we're talking about now, what is was good back then. Right. But no, I do. I do think that some of it's a protest against, you know, I mean, you see all these people talk about, I, I no more of this political correctness. Da, da, da. I do think that's actually a lot of what that is about. Yeah, it, it, it can be very much dog whistly. And I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be Pollyanna about this, but yeah, I'm pretty well, sure that's there. What I would maybe say is that some of it may not be conscious dog whistling. I don't think it is at all. I think for some With people, the it still is. Of people. Yeah, I mean, there are definitely some. I mean, we could we could name some, uh, but, but I think we're not going to do that. Yeah. Well, there, there's one we could, um, but anyway, um, let's are just say that. Let's just say the word Skokie, and you can do your own <laughs> research. Are you guys familiar with the the New Yorker cover? which was a painting of a map of the United States from a New Yorker's perspective, yes. right? So th the idea here is that there's New York, there's San Francisco, there's Chicago, there's Boston, and then there's the South. Right. It doesn't make any difference if it's Minnesota. It's, that's still the South. It's all South. And I wonder if we have here are a lot of folks, their map of the world is there's America, there's yeah. like mini America, which is Western Europe, and then there's primitive jungle. That's yep. the yeah. rest of the world. Here there be and, dragons. And 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 when when an archaeologist says, "Oh, look at these amazing things that the people in this part of the world produced," and we know this archaeologically, there's this disconnect. Well, how is that even possible? That's not America. That's not mini America. That's the primitive jungle. So therefore, if archaeologists really found incredible stuff there, it had to come from somewhere else, right? Because those no, people I think are that... incapable. Right. My final comment would be that that map, that sort of my perspective, is in fact how things have been taught and still some degree are historically. Like, oh, look, Romans, Phoenicians, Egyptians, and Celts, and those people, Aztec, and then I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's kind of like how you could visually talk about this collapse. And then there's like some African people because all of Africa is one country. Yeah. So. so. And, and, how, and how many of these folks don't really quite know that Egypt is in Africa? They don't. It's, it's interesting how Africa, Egypt somehow is like this separate case. And it's kind of like, maybe it's off in this very long peninsula and almost is really in Europe. So it doesn't count. Right. Yeah. All right, Ken, final thoughts? Um, no, this, this, this was great. Um, we went in a whole bunch of different directions, but I think we all come back. We've come back around to this notion that effectively, essentially, so much of this hyperdiffusionism is based on an inability uh, for a certain groups of people to accept the creativity and genius of folks who don't have this, don't have, who are not white and who don't live in the West. And, um, and that inability has, has kind of forced them to come up with these fantastic scenarios where, well, our ancestors acting as a Peace Corps helped all those people out. Right. And I would say it also reflects their inability to recognize the cleverness and, and frankly, occasionally genius, although not that often, of archaeologists to actually figure some things out, right. but not based off of historical texts. And I'm willing to concede that some of this is just plain old ignorance and the inability to accept change over time and leave it at that kindness. But, yeah, I do agree with both of you on that one. All right. 
All right, guys, this has been great. Thank you both for being on the show tonight. Thank you. Absolutely. We've solved diffusionism. We really never have oh, yeah, It's not a problem again. anymore. It's all done. It's all yeah. done. No more diffusionism. It's all over with. Ended let's, in the 60s. We put a fork in it. Done. Let, let's distribute this to Scott <laughs> Walter, to Tsoukalos. They're just going to give up. They're going to throw up their arms. Oh, my God, if only we had known, and we'll never hear of them again. I'm sure that's exactly how it will go. No, yes, exactly. <laughs> all right, guys, bye. Good talking to you, Jeff. Yep. Raise your trials as one will call. No way down to a dinosaur. Thanks for listening. We hope you've enjoyed it. Our music was provided by Archeosuit Productions. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes or Stitcher and share us wherever you use social media. You can contact us with your questions, comments, or angry email at archiefantasies at gmail.com. You can follow the podcast at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash archiefantasies. You can follow the blog at www.archiefantasies.com and get updates on Tumblr and Twitter at archiefantasies. You can also look for us on Facebook. If you're looking for the show notes for this episode, go to the podcast website at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash archiefantasies. Thanks again for listening. No, we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do dinosaurs. We don't do dinosaurs. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www archaeologypodcastnetwork.com Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com